So this ends up being really part two of the, of, a, of the two sections. The Lord saves, establishes, and increases. And what we saw last week is that when it says the Lord saves, we recognize that in the work of, of the grace of God that would be to the Jews, to their descendants, and to the Gentiles, those who are fall, far off, those who would come in, in faith, those who would come in repentance, those who would obey in baptism, would be as many as the Lord our God calls to themselves. We also recognize that the sad common translation there in uh, verse 40, where it said, save yourselves from this crooked generation, really doesn't reflect what the text says because that word was in the passive. It's not what you do, it's what must be done to you. You must be saved. And we looked at other verses that showed how the scripture uses that passive. So the Lord saves. Salvation belongs to our God. And just like you must be born again, well, how does one do that? Do they go back in the womb? No. As the spirit blows and as the wind blows, that's how it happens. Outside of your power, outside of your control, all dependent upon the creator. Salvation is the same. The Lord not only saves, he establishes, is the one who established the church, establishes us in the faith. And he's the one that lays down, as we're going to see today, the things that we are to believe and the things that we are to practice. We do what we do, we believe what we believe because God has so revealed it. We don't want there to be any point at which we close our Bibles and say, look, you won't find this in your Bibles, but I believe. Well, I mean, there's a bunch of people ready to do that. The world's full of people ready to do that. You know, or by deduction and by implication, which the, the potential problem there is you've, you've just stepped into trusting the mind of man beyond what is clearly expressed by God. We must exercise caution because once you do that, the church will end up splintered into a multitude of denominations. It could happen. Right? Yes. And so we want to be a people who understand the Lord saves, the Lord establishes. We look to him and say, my salvation is all of you. We look to Christ as the head of the church and say, you lead. You tell us what to do. You tell us how, how to behave. You tell us how to worship. You tell us how to witness, how to live. You tell us everything because you are the head. There are not multiple heads. It is Christ alone. And those who would might function in whatever supposed places of leadership within Christianity need to do so in hearty and humble submission to the one true head. He establishes and he alone increases. And so we're going to see some of how he establishes today. And I want us to remember uh, as we look into some of this, there are elements of scripture that we've got to get deeply ingrained in our hearts and minds because they help us overcome worldviews and patterns that our fleshly nature and the world ingrains in us. The, it is the process of renewing our minds so that we have the mind of Christ and not the mind of men. Almost like a reprogramming. 
the, the world and people like to think, no, we're, we're all neutral and we're all unbiased. That's not the case. Everyone is to a large extent not only affected by their sin nature that all men have inherited because of the fall of Adam. Beyond that, we are profoundly affected by the prevailing culture of our day. It is all around us. It is, in, it is in the entertainment that we view. It is in the conversations that we hear. It is unavoidable. And the person who thinks somehow they have overcome it, all they're really doing is saying, I can't see it at all. But you can't see it because you've covered your eyes. The scripture uh, helps us to see beyond those things. And among those, and I want us to... To see this in Philippians 2.13, God's word clearly says this, which is unexpected and seems confusing to men. But this is what God's word clearly says so that we as believers understand whatever we do, it is by grace that we stand. It is by grace that we walk. It is the working of God. God is the one who has drawn us to himself. God is the one who has made us anew. And even now, the willingness to engage, to serve, to live, is a work of God. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you. Now, most believers are very, very comfortable with that notion. God works in us. Yes, good, I need that. God works. But this goes further than just some sort of distant work and general good this is indicating to us that the work of God is so powerful and profound that it absolutely invades overtakes guides empowers controls and constrains even our wills and you know what we say do it, Lord. It does not make us puppets. The grace of God setting us free from sin and free from the flesh makes us willing servants, delighted doers of the things that God has set before us. God is at work within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure so that we have good, that we have positive wills and wants do we praise ourselves god thank you for putting such a thing into our hearts maybe much like ezra when they were rebuilding the temple and rebuilding jerusalem cries out to god praise be to you god who put such a thing into the heart of the king to rebuild the temple can god put things into men's hearts yes and when he does, we delight in it. We don't want to be left to ourselves. We don't want to be left to the world. We want his grace to help us be set free and overcome the world. And what is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. The grace of God at work in us by faith rooted in Christ Jesus. God is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Further, I want us to remember even in the ministry of Paul, he says this in Colossians 1.29. For this I 
toil and struggle. Or I toil struggling. So who's laboring? Who's giving himself? The apostle. But even as he says, he is the one toiling, struggling, and laboring. He says this, for this I toil, struggling, with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So how did I do it? How did I persevere? How did I press on? How did I remain steadfast? Do any of us have grounds for boasting in ourselves? No. How do I continue in, in this ministry that at times may seem thankless? At times, according to the standards of this world, may seem fruitless. How do we persevere in the midst of that? Toil and struggle with all of the energy that he powerfully works within us. So my will, my work, my strength, my energy... Where is the ultimate source for all the good that might come in and through me and you? God himself. Which is why, again, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder. Sounds like a boast, doesn't it? Not until you keep reading. I worked harder is a statement of fact. Why did he work harder? He says it. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. So God gets all the glory and the and the, uh, for everything uh, that unfolds. So now, as we come to Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, I want us to begin to see these elements that are essential in the early church. And the first thing that it unfolds, it says this, and they devoted themselves. Now, this is why you're wondering why that extensive introduction from those verses. They devoted themselves. Well, if we were the early church, maybe we would devote ourselves the way they did. If we had the actual apostles with us, then maybe we would be as committed as they were. If we No, it wasn't because of the apostles. It wasn't because of the age or the era. It was because of the grace and power of God at work within them. And know this very well. The very spirit in the purpose of God's grace throughout this age until the return of his son is the same. These are the last days in which the spirit is poured out. Poured out. So what they had poured out upon them. What they had by the grace of God working among them was not unique and exclusive to them. It is the work and grace of God until the end of the ages. And so it is not that we, the, the lack of this same level of fervency would not be because of a lack of the apostles or because it's been so long since the Spirit was first poured out. This was the work of God's grace. And the very same God the very same power and the very same grace is at work today in us. 
the world, and I, and I don't get it. Um, years ago, um, there, was a, there was a couple that was hosting in, in their home in Mauritius um, a Bible study. And the, the husband who was teaching the Bible study began at that time to really dig deeper into the scripture and was beginning to unfold things and, and really lay out as best he could some of the clear and deeper things that the scriptures teach. And the pastor of that particular church came to him and said, ho, 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 slow down. Not every Christian is that much interested in doctrine. We need to, we need, you know, we've got to understand not everybody is as interested. So we want to just make it very practical. We want to make it very light. We want to uh, uh, simplify it because not, not every Christian has the same level of commitment. And, and maybe from an observation point of view, that might seem true. But that should not be accepted. The idea that complacency and Christianity ought, can somehow coexist doesn't make sense. You know, because, I mean, Christianity, uh, when we really think of it, it is, it is the life of Christ in us by the Word and the Spirit. You know, that would be like saying, you know what, um, I mean... Faithfulness. Remember, Christ came to secure us as his own possession that we would be zealous for good works. Uh, the idea of earnestness, zeal, passion, commitment, devotion, faithfulness, it should be as simple as this. People who are alive, they breathe. It's almost as if, in a figurative sense, that pastor was saying, look, not everybody who's alive is going to be breathing. you got to understand this. Not everybody alive is going to be breathing. I disagree with that. If you're alive, what's going to be there? Life, breath, together. They devoted themselves. Now, when it had said, save yourself, that was in the passive. That was a, a mis statement in the translation but this one they devoted themselves is in the present active to, to help us understand what that, that is that's not something that they devoted themselves uh, it's not like a one-time thing I I consecrated myself once upon a time I, I bowed the knee in the past no, the, the idea of devoting themselves, again, the way that it's stated in the King James, is they continued steadfastly. Now, that does help a little bit, because sometimes when we say something's devoted, you know, somebody would take one of their possessions and say, I devote this to the Lord. And then they would, they would give it to the temple, and they, they wouldn't see it anymore, necessarily. It'd be over there now, being used in the temple. This is not like that, something that's over there. This is something that is persistent. The, the sense of this word in, in its basic meaning carries this notion that it is, a, it is a continuing or a persistence that involves intense effort. Even with the possible implication that it is persisting despite 
difficulties. It is that idea of, of a uh, continual clinging fast, a continual holding to, uh, a not letting go. Uh, again, the idea would, would, would kind of be like this, and we've all... Um, uh, heard of the, these tragedies where someone may have been whitewater rafting or may have been uh, uh, out kayaking and they're swept over and overturned. The, the reality is this, in the current of this, this world and, and the wickedness and the sway, you, you get folded over, it, it is a torrent that you cannot overcome. And the idea is that you would grab hold of like a root or a tree, or something that's hanging over. Is it good enough to keep from being swept away, to grab it, and then let go? I don't know why I'm still going along. I grabbed the tree. Yeah, you grabbed it, but what you didn't do was what? Continue to hold fast to it. It's not about what you once did. Because the current is ongoing and the current is relentless, the clinging and persisting must be ongoing and relentless. You hold on to it. You grip it. You don't let go. It has to be a continual commitment and a continual clinging. I don't like the idea. And we've come to be comfortable with it. The notion that in this present age, that somehow when someone is First converted, they're on fire. Passionate. They love the Lord. They want to get their life all sorted out. They speak the gospel to everyone. That in the early days, oh my. But you know, as time goes by, just drifts a little bit, weakens a little bit. Do we really expect that someone will still be fired up and passionate and earnest and faithful 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years. The reality is, yeah, more than that, we can actually expect the intensity of that flame to be ever increasing. Because, because the fuel they have to spark that flame initially is, is but little. It is some, but it is but little understanding of God and his being and his nature and Christ and his grace and salvation. It, it, is, it is a glorious knowledge of the gospel, but we continue to grow in grace and knowledge. So yes, it should start as a, as a wonderful little fire. But we continue to add, by our growing in the word, fuel and fuel and fuel to that fire to where it, it continues to grow and not to be a blazing bonfire. You know, the, the world gets concerned with this idea that, you know, something can build up and it can flame out and burn out. That's not the case. Because God's spirit is not going to run out. Someone would, again, uh, have to be concerned. Well, I've got, I've got this lamp that it's lit. But how long will it stay lit? Well, if the oil's getting low, what do you need to do? Add more oil. Well, the fact is this. 
by the grace of God, we have that permanent presence of the Spirit. We have the, the ready reception of God's Word. There need never be an emptiness. And so when we see this, um, this persistence and committed, what, were, what was it that these, there was this devotion, this continuance, this persistence in? The first thing that we see in this passage, and I try to take your attention still, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, please note this. When the scriptures are speaking of the earliest assemblies of the New Testament church, in Christ Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. This is the divine description of those things that distinguish that church. They committed themselves steadfastly, devotedly, earnestly to the apostles' teaching. And that's listed first. And it's not uncommon in the nature of the Greek, Greek language for things to be listed first because they are often of greater priority and significance. So it may be the case here, but it's not uncommon in this present day and age for people to tend to put aside this kind of thing and push it down. Um, recently, I've heard that there, there's um, uh, various associations, even here locally, trying to gather different uh, church leaders together to try to figure out what we need to do to reach the millennials. You know, what we need to do to reach Generation X and what we need to do to reach this or to reach that. What we need to do that we might become more relevant more impactful. And the interesting thing is they think that they're going to get the answer by looking out and around at the world around them. You know, what is society doing? What is television and cinema doing? What, what, what are the entertainments and avenues of this world doing that is working? Because they seem to be able to get these people's attention. So let's see what they're doing. And let's adapt and adopt those things. So that we might also be successful. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But is that what works? No, because again, the gospel has always been a message. In every generation that was counter-cultural. It's never a message that, that satisfied the natural desires of men. Indeed, we're, we're told in 1 Corinthians that the natural desires of men, though, those who were Gentiles, it had to appeal to some form of wisdom. It had to really work for them as a philosophy, as a structure of thinking, as a way of living. Or to the Jews, it had to have some, they had to have a sign. They needed something more mysterious and, and or more mystical. And those same kinds of things are what the world is clinging to today. And God does not say in, in 1 Corinthians, so here's what you do. To the world, to the Gentile, 
appeal to their wisdom. And to the Jew, show them a sign. Is that what he did? No. Jesus said, you demand a sign. No sign is going to be given you. But the sign of the Son of Man that is like Noah. God, his word, his work was not going to capitulate to the avenues of men. Because even if you do, God had already decided, it says there in 1 Corinthians 1, that through wisdom the world would not know God. Reminds us in John 12, though Jesus had done many signs among them, they still did not believe. So the answer isn't in wisdom and sign. It actually goes on to tell us in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not understand the things of God. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned. And so do we really go back and say what works in the world? No, here's the beautiful reality. We approach what we do with this strong and firm confidence. The world does not like what we have or what we do. But you know what? For those that God himself, like we saw last week, chooses out of the world, that he sends his spirit and gives understanding, they now have a wisdom that's not the wisdom of this world, that is the wisdom that is from God. And they believe and receive the things that are of God. And the things that were rejected before are the things that are clung to now. And so the answer is not to look out. And I'm also saying the answer is not even necessarily to look back. Because when people do look back, they can look what happened in the Great Awakening, what happened in various revivals and times, what happened. No, we look at God's Word. And the clarity and simplicity of it, we stick to the Word. Paul writes to Timothy, warning that in the last days people will want things that itch their ears, things that please and satisfy them. They're going to wander off after mist. They're going to go all kinds of different directions. But here's what you do, Timothy. Preach the word in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, correct with all patience and teaching. It doesn't change. They cling to the Apostles, it is, I would simply say it this way, it is bound to and built upon the Bible. Not accidental that it says the apostles' teaching, which might note this for you. They weren't going around the room and saying, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? There were very specific men who were delivering a very specific message. And we looked at this a number of weeks ago, and just by way of reminder, Jesus had said very clearly throughout the Gospel of John, I don't speak my own will. Whatever the Father gives me, that I speak. I do not speak from my own authority, but whatever He gives me, that I speak. He then, as the Son, tells the apostles the very same thing. You, uh, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will remind you of all that I've said to you while I was with you. 
and they would be his apostles, his sent ones. They would speak not on their own authority, but on the authority of Christ. Going on so far as to say, as Paul did repeatedly, the message that I speak, the gospel that I speak is not man's gospel, nor did it originate from me, but it was given me in a revelation by Jesus Christ. So again, when, one of the reasons we see this, it's not just a commitment to teaching. Or, using the King James word, not just a commitment to doctrine. Now, there's nothing wrong with a commitment to doctrine. But it's not just doctrine. Now, some people might not like this idea. But this, is, this passage does not expressly reference the Westminster Confession of Faith. Or... The London Baptist Confession, or the Belgic Confession, or the Synod of Dort, or any other things that some of you know, and some of you are saying, what is he talking about? All of the man-made doctrinal statements, which I'm not disparaging them, there is value in men committing themselves to the study of God's word to see what it teaches and trying to write those things down. But ultimately, all of the doctrinal statements of men, they are not the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So we go, those are useful in as much as we compare them to God's word. And so it is rooted and bound to and built upon the Bible. In 2 Peter, it says it this way. 2 Peter 3, 2. You should remember the things spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's the commitment to the Bible. That's what we're to remember. Those things that were spoken of old by the holy prophets and then those commands that were given to us by Christ, through the apostles. That's it. That's why it says in Jude, verse 3, Beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary, appealed to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not changing. The truth that we are to believe the God that we are to worship, the gospel we are to preach, the way that we are to approach him does not change. It is once for all delivered to the saints by Christ through the apostles and in the preservation of God written down for us that we would have it in our hands, his powerful word. Now, I want to I want to just see this again very clearly. The scriptures tell us um, how Christ was also so committed and rooted in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 4, as Jesus goes into a synagogue, he reads from, from the scriptures. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2 for them. And then he says to them, after he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Verse 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you go back through the teachings of Christ, throughout his earthly ministry, he's constantly referencing. 
uh, the Old Testament. When challenged about certain things, in order to explain those things, he again refers to the Old Testament. When David says, uh, speak to my Lord to sit at my right hand, is he talking about his son or is he talking about his Lord? How does it go? And Jesus constantly refers back in moments of temptation. Where does he also go? It is written. Christ himself exemplified one who was, was bound to and built upon the scriptures. Indeed, the scriptures themselves all really pointed forward, prepared, and built up for him. In Luke 24, it says this of Jesus in verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. And the world says, well... You know, we don't, you don't understand. We live in a, a visual stimulated world today. Words just won't work. So you gotta, you gotta get them through something else. You know, well, what I, what I think is, is powerful and, and sad is what they're not what they're not understanding is yes the world can evoke all sorts of things people can go to a movie and a movie can move them to tears to weeping you know there still remains after so many now now coming on decades these shows where hopeful individuals come forward to sing for auditions in hope that they will move on to the next round and eventually get a record contract and a lot of money. And it's not uncommon. It's been happening for all these years. One of the, the biggest uh, compliments that someone can give a, of a singer is, oh, he gave me goosebumps. Oh, yeah, he gave me goosebumps. People can get goosebumps from the singing of a silly song. People can be moved to tears. By a fictional story. We say yeah. But you know people aren't really going to be moved by the word of God. Maybe people on their own will not. But people inhabited by the spirit of God will. Yeah, I love what it tells us in John, in, uh, also in Luke 24, verse 32, as, as, as Jesus had spoken to them on that road to Emmaus and spoken and it opened up the scriptures to them. It said, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scripture to us? Did not our hearts burn with his? When were their hearts burning? When were they inflamed? When were they ignited? As the word of God was being opened to them. You know when it wasn't necessarily? The music was just right. The lighting was just right. The verse was repeated just enough times. With eyes closed and hands uplifted. And they felt, they felt something. They felt, well, yes, they did. And I'm not saying they didn't feel something. But I'll tell you this. I can point you to pagan Hindu worship. And you know what they do? Oh. 
repeat, repeat, repeat. There are worldly ways to get yourself into a mindset to feel something and experience something. And it, and it works, whatever the nonsense of the content that's involved. We don't need those pseudo-substitutes. The Word of God and the power of the Spirit is alive and active and glorious. And we don't need to substitute it for that. And we don't need to make people think, you know what, if you didn't have a goosebump, then you didn't experience anything. That's not true. Because remember, the Word of God fulfills a multitude of functions. Sometimes it lays our thoughts and intentions bare. Sometimes it comes to us with a rebuking and correction. And I've got to tell you this, most of my personal experience of being rebuked or corrected did not involve goosebumps. Did not involve a sweet sensation or a good feeling. It involved at times a heaviness of heart that dropped me to my knees in repentance and confession. Well, people don't like that. Do they, do they not prefer that mountaintop experience? You know that... You remember being a young person at Christian camp on the last night of camp around the fire... Where the music's being played. Everybody's feeling sentimental because they're about to leave. And, and they're sensing some, some spirituality. And, and, they, and they feel something. And if I could only keep that. And so they want to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. And they think that somehow God is only on the mountaintop. Brothers and sisters, that's not the case. Like we've seen recently, that's how the pagans believe. Oh, they defeated us in that battle because their God is the God of the mountaintop. We need to get them out on the plains. We need to get them over in the valleys. Our God will be strong in the valleys. Brothers and sisters, our God is strong in the mountains, in the plains, in the valleys. He is with us in all of those places. Whether we sense it, whether we feel it or not. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. you know? Which always makes me uncomfortable. The, the language that creeps into Christendom to say things like this. God, we welcome you to this place. What do you mean you welcome him? He is already with us whenever we're gathered in his name. Indeed, he dwells within us. I might go so far as to say the highest of heavens and all of the earth and all of creation and all that inhabits it is his. He owns it. So we're going to welcome him to a place that is his, that he already inhabits. Is, is there any place that he is not if you take up and you flee to the ends of the ocean, uh, will he not be there? If you go down to the depths of Sheol, is he not there? Our God is everywhere. Theologically, we refer to God as omnipresent. Present everywhere. And then we welcome him. And we, or we tell him he's welcome. And then maybe we gather and sing a song. There's a welcome here. Welcome here, Christian. Welcome here. You remember that song? 
Turn around, shake another hand, shake a hand next to you. And trying to stir up some sense of feeling, some sense of community. The Spirit of God does these things profoundly and powerfully through the outworking of His Word. We've got to get back to His Word and never abandon that. I mean, one of the things that's, again, so powerful and so beautiful. If you did go back to, like, Nehemiah. Chapter 8, one of the things that they were doing, the people gathered together, the scripture was read to them from early morning until noon. And they explained to the people the word of God and gave the clear sense so that they understood. And it tells us that the people went back to their homes taking food and rejoicing because they had understood the word. That should be the longing of the heart of God's people to understand the word because it pierces through the veil of false perception that is all around us and the veil of deceit. You know, people will tend to say this, um, we've tried it God's way and it's not working. So God's way always works to accomplish God's purposes. Remember, Isaiah 55 tells us about his word that goes forth. Does it ever return void? Does it ever not accomplish its purpose? It always, like the rain that falls, accomplishes its purpose. The word of God does not return void, but always accomplishes its purpose. The problem is, we don't know what the purpose is. We, and I'm, in, I'm included in this, we want every day or every gathering to be the day of Pentecost. We don't want any of them to be the day of Pentecost. Lystra, which is the city that Paul went into, and when he preached the gospel, there was riot, and he was stoned to death and dragged out to the side of the city and left for dead. We don't want it to be like Asia, where all the churches in Asia had turned against him. No matter what would happen, when, though he was stoned, though he was beaten, though he was left for dead, he got up outside of Lystra, went into the next town, which is Derby, and you know what he did there? He did the very same thing that just failed in Lystra. Do you know why? Because the message was intended to be a message of death to death and condemnation to those who are perishing. And life to life among those who are being saved. So we don't change it. Because God is doing his work. And how God works does not change. Romans 10 tells us. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how shall they call upon the name of the Lord? Unless someone is sent. And someone must go. And someone must preach. You know what, it, you know what it's not? How shall they call upon the name of the Lord? Uh, uh. Unless they see a movie. Unless we move them somehow. How is it that they shall call upon the name of the Lord? The grace of God must be poured out. I'm going to move on to the second point quickly here. Not only do we see that there is a, a, a bound to and built upon the Bible. But secondly, we see that they are fervent in and faithful to fellowship. It says... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
and. So what the first thing that they were devoted to was the apostles' teaching. And from the apostles' teaching, other things are going to flow out of it. And to fellowship. That's, it's an interesting term there, or participation. It's such an interesting term that people get all mixed up and, and confused about the sense of it. Because it's a, a wide-sensed word in the scripture. It can speak of participation. It could speak of mutual community. It's not merely socialization. It is a, it is a point of identity, unity, an active participation and involvement of a community. And that point of unity and that point of involvement is because we are all together in Christ. We are all one in Christ. In the context of this, and, and uh, again, I've, I've somewhat over-prepared, but, I, but I, can, I can communicate this very simply for us. When Jesus was about his earthly ministry... It was not uncommon for the scribes and Pharisees to look at what he was doing and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They did not understand because in their society, a tax collector was somewhat of a traitor. He had given his allegiance to Rome over and against his own local people. That person is no good. And this person is a known sinner. And so society was divided into all kinds of different hierarchies. Even the same kinds of things. When they would have meals and weddings and feasts. They would have various tables. And those tables would distinguish. We important. You a little bit. You less. You less. You least. And so Jesus, remember, had said, take the seat, the lowest seat. And then if they call you to come up to the seat of honor, then you would be honored. Because the society was all structured like that. Who is high? Who is low? Who is important? You can't sit and eat at my table. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get servants and field workers sitting at the table of Governors and pro-councils and leaders. It just doesn't happen in the world. But you know where it does happen? In the kingdom of God. Where all of those boundaries and all of those barriers are broken down. It doesn't matter what, what country someone comes from. It doesn't matter what, what language background they come from. It doesn't matter where on society's status standards they come from. The scripture says... In Christ, there is no longer slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And so when uh, Paul was in Galatia and Peter himself came there and Barnabas was also there, some Jews also from James came in and suddenly Barnabas and, and uh, Peter, who were fraternizing with the Gentiles, engaging them as equals, treating them as brothers, suddenly they drew back. And Paul confronted him publicly. How can you, though a Jew, 
act like a Gentile. You're, you're acting like the world does while claiming to be one of God's own. That's not the way. He actually says your life, your walk is out of step with the gospel. The gospel breaks down all those barriers. And we find ourselves united. There is a united front. There is a household of faith. There is a special connection. A bond that God has built in. We are a people who are fervent in fellowship. Because we have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with the Father. We have fellowship with the Spirit. We have fellowship with one another. But we are not to have fellowship with the world. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship, what participation has light with darkness? There is a bond. There is an identity. There is a community. There is a unity that we share in Christ that the world doesn't have. And there's something amiss if we identify better with groups of worldly identification than that which is bound up in Christ. God help us. Further, we also see this. They were, so they were breaking bread and barriers. Now, again, it, it, they were committed to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, fellowship. It says the breaking of bread. Now, a lot of guys get caught up on this, whether that was the observance of the Lord's Supper. The church should always be committed to the observance of the Lord's Supper. The, the term breaking of bread was simply, it was an idiom. It was a way of saying, sharing a meal. Actually, if you look just what it says down here in verse 46. And day by day attending temple and together breaking bread in their homes. That breaking bread meant having a meal. It certainly also would include that extraordinary meal. That speaks of our unity and connection with Christ. But it goes beyond that. Because again, the idea is these people were coming into each other's houses. They were equals. Boundaries, barriers, absolutely broken down. They would spend time together with each other in love. Fourth in this passage. We see that there was, they were joyfully generous. Now where do we see that? It says this. Uh, awe, verse 43, awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And all who believed, verse 44, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So again, they had their own possessions. But what were they doing? They didn't consider what they owned to be theirs exclusively. Really ultimately they considered it all in common. Because they considered realistically. We belong to each other. Together we belong to Christ. Everything we are. Everything we have belongs to Christ. So ultimately nothing is, is for my hoarding. <laughs> Nothing is just for my personal exclusiveness. Nothing is for me to hide. So when there, is a, when there was a need among the brothers, it was like, wait, I have the ability to meet that need. I have these extra portions of land that I've inherited, that I've received, that I've purchased or whatever, that are not absolutely necessary to me. And he has a need that needs to be met. Let me sell that off so that that need can be met. 
It, this is not, as some have sadly confusingly noted it, the idea uh, there was among Greek mystic societies what was called a Pythagorean society. Now, that's not the Pythag Pythagorean theory in geometry. Different issue. Might be the same guy, though. The, what, they, what those societies would do is they were communes. They would sell everything that they had, and the deeds were, or the deeds were all written to the, to the leaders of the commune. And they would work, and all their money would be given to the commune. And then the, the, after giving the, all that they made to the commune, they'd say, uh, I need $100 to go pay my bill. Okay, here you go. And so they would have to get from the collective. That was, a, that was the way things were done in the Pythagorean society. That's not the notion that is here. This is, this is a spirit of um, selflessness. A spirit of commitment to the need of others. Because do note this. Still in the word of God. And remember. You don't build a doctrine off a single verse. You don't take something in isolation. We got to take the collective. And we, we would see this as we move forward. And I'll just draw your attention to it. It says this in verse. Um, chapter 4. Verse 34 and 35. It says there was not a needy. Or a person that lacked among them. For as many as were owners of land sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles feet. And distributed to any as any had need. Both verse 45 had said as any had need. The end of verse 35 of chapter 4 says as any have need. As Ananias and Sapphira died. God's word says this in Acts 5 verse 4. While it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? Okay, so even though they were believers, even though they were in the church, in the collective community, did suddenly they not own property personally? No, before you sold it, who owned it? Uh, you did. And when you sold it, what does he say? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? It's not like, hey, it's not yours, it belongs to the collective. No, it's yours. And when you sold it, who did the money belong to? You. <laughs> it didn't belong to the collective. Was it not yours to use, it says, uh, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and lied to men and not to God? So the explanation is, remember, there was a joyful generosity to meet the need that we didn't hoard and cling to our things. We considered others' needs more important. We considered other people in the community of faith more important than possessions. People over possessions. That's the notion. That's why the rich in Timothy are encouraged to be rich in good works and generous, ready to help. And so we see that there was uh, just this great unity and bond that is built up. And then lastly in this passage it says. It ends with this. They, they had the sense of awe. This great sense of spirit. Verse 47. Praising God. Having favor with people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. Who added to their number? The Lord. Now initially it was many. 
And like I said, in some, in some times it was large groups, at some times it was small, at some times there was wholesale rejection. Whatever was to happen, at some times there was a, there was a large uh, uh, ingathering and then many of those turned away. But note this, it is the Lord who gathered. It was not the apostles who gathered. It was not the early church who gathered. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be you who gather. It is the Lord who gathers and causes the increase. But note this, it is we that the Lord uses to share his word. The agent of uh, and power behind all of the gathering is God himself. But the instruments that he is pleased to make use of to deliver his message of power and truth are his people that he has equipped. So simply um, closing out with these thoughts. The Lord saves. The Lord establishes. The Lord increases. When the Lord establishes, a church will have these four things as as significantly evident among them. They are bound to and built upon the Bible. They are fervent in and faithful to fellowship. They are breaking bread, sharing meals and lives together and breaking boundaries, not worried about age and background and things like that. Fourthly, they are, and I, and I skipped past this and I don't want to, they are persistent in prayers. The breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. That I like the way it says it. it says persistent in the prayers, which is a weird phrase because our prayers are to be many fold. There's intercession for the saints. There's praise and exaltation to God. There's personal prayer where we get away by ourselves. There's there's a prayer where we sit with one or two brothers. There's prayer with our spouses. There's prayer with our families. There's prayer of the corporate gathering. There are so many facets of prayer that we and that the church is to be participating in and committed to. This is what was the essence of the early church. This is the community that God himself establishes. And we pray that as God has established those same commitments among us. That he would be pleased as and when he wills to also increase according to his good pleasure. Let's pray.